The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapters 10, chapter 10, verse 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Uh, thank you, Susan. My, my name is Jonathan Winfrey. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thank you for being here today with us. Uh, as Drew said, it's a very busy, busy time, busy day. Um, but at least we get to be together, uh, and that's part of the fun of, <clears throat> excuse me, of doing life together and being part of the church. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the book of 1 Corinthians, and so you'll see there in your worship folder uh, an outline on the side, uh, or excuse me, on the opposite page to the passage that Susan just read. Uh, and <clears throat> I want to say this, enjoy the clarity while it lasts. It's pretty clear as to what Paul is saying in many places up to this point, uh, because we're, we're coming to some of the more difficult and probably some of the most controversial passages in the whole of Scripture. So no pressure to Drew as he follows up. Uh, just go ahead and read on into 11, 12, 13, and 14. You'll see what I mean. Uh, but Paul, the apostle, has continually been calling the Corinthians back to their failure to love. They're, they're, they are bad lovers, So much of their cultural setting, as well as abuse of their freedom as Christians, negatively affected how they dealt with issues and conflicts within the church, uh, thus making them poor at loving. One of Paul's chief concerns in 1 Corinthians is how freedom in Christ affects oneself and one's relationships, both inside and outside of the church. And this passage is a summary of sorts for the last three chapters, 8 through 10, these chapters have been kind of an alternating focus on two things, right? The threat of freedom to one's own spiritual health and well-being due to a lack of restraint, due to evil cravings, which is largely what we looked at last week. But in addition, the threat of your freedom to the spiritual health and well-being of others. Uh, But there's a connection that's important to mention Especially in light of last week, the idols in my life always keep me from loving God and loving my neighbor. 
as my love for empty things is replaced by a love supreme for Jesus, the effect is an increase in loving my neighbor. And so, as I talked about a little bit last week, learning to diagnose my idols is the very means by which I become a better lover and servant of you. So I don't just diagnose them for me. I am really diagnosing them for you so that I can better serve and love you. The gospel turns me inward in order to propel me outward. And we have to be careful because the first move can become self-absorption without the second if you're not careful. So we need to remember that. Now, uh, in terms of this passage this morning, 1023 to chapter 11, verse 1, I'm not necessarily going to go through it chronologically. That is, from 10, verse 23, all the way down to 11, verse 1. Kind of going to be moving around uh, throughout. But you'll see there in the outline three things that I want to draw your attention to uh, in meditating on this passage. First, is that Paul's freedom, and this is something we've talked about a number of times over the last three or four weeks, Paul's freedom led him into slavery, right? His call to the Corinthians and to us is the same. How does that happen? And you'll see there the point freedom equals slavery with a question mark. Why a question mark? Because if you wrote that on a whiteboard in any university classroom in the country, you'd probably get blank stares or at least some odd stares, like trying to explain the Trinity by writing 1 equals 3 on the board, right? Secondly, though, how does it happen that you become a person whose freedom leads you into slavery, whose move, primary move of your life is toward others? And Paul summarizes a few, uh, a few verses of that, which we'll get to. How does that happen? You need an earthquake, a glorious earthquake to be exact, so that this gravitational pull within our hearts changes from myself to you. And not only that, but a change of of that magnitude changes and empowers us, and we get a model to imitate in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, lastly, Paul's exhortation in chapter 11, verse 1, how does that move us toward and help us live lives of selfless loving. So first, freedom leading me to slavery. Throughout this this section of the letter, Paul talks again and again about his freedom in Christ being the very thing that enslaves him to others. That still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to our ears, at least it shouldn't, because we tend to think of freedom and slavery as mutually exclusive states of being, right? You can't be free and enslaved, you can't be enslaved and free. Uh, Paul at times says things that would seem to indicate he's codependent and clearly hasn't read the book Boundaries. Needs to get that, digest it, apply it to his life because clearly he hasn't, right? And as Drew talked about a few weeks ago in chapter 9, Paul's identity and spiritual status were not tied or connected to his performance. That's how he can say, I'm free from the law. The evaluation of his life was not dependent on the good or the bad things that he did or didn't do. The verdict over his life was beautiful. God spoke over his life, that's very good. How? Because he was united to Jesus by faith. And that truth, in turn, had retuned his heart 
so that he was completely free from the performance or the duties that were required by the law. He lived with the singing of the Father over him, and that song ringing in his ears, not because of his obedience, but because of Jesus's. Now, I'll try to get at this with an analogy uh, that, that I hope is helpful uh, to make sense out of some of this. Think about a slave in 19th century America. A slave didn't have an identity apart from their owner. They were simply known as Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so's slave, not, as, not by their name, right? And when they were freed, though, their identity changed. They were no longer a slave, but a so-called freedman, right? But what if they voluntarily went back to their owner and wanted to labor on the plantation or the farm or wherever it was? What if the owner treated them as if they were a slave, but with the understanding they were actually free and could leave at any time? In that time period, the term free slave would be an oxymoron because you couldn't be a free slave. You were either a slave or a free man. And yet that's the very thing Paul says about himself. But the difference is this. The one who owns you has changed. You went from one owner to a different owner. And so true freedom for Paul meant that his life now existed for the purpose of seeking good for his neighbor. Verse 24 Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The other, the other person, whoever that is, became his focus. And since he was no longer enslaved to being viewed a certain way by his friends or the community, he could serve anyone. Since he was no longer enslaved to the approval of others, he could serve without being needed or without needing or wanting something in return. The more free you are, the better you serve. Does that begin to make a little sense? I hope. Okay, look at verse 24 specifically. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And this is so amazing because Paul envisions a community. He envisions a culture of relationships in which I'm preoccupied. I'm preoccupied, right? You know what it's like to be preoccupied. Fixated on, focus, I can't get my attention away from. He envisions a place where I'm preoccupied with your edification and good. I'm actively seeking your benefit because that's love. He says it this way in chapter 13, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. Love does not insist on its own way. And that helps us to see why Paul took so much care in thinking about the weak and why he insisted that the freedom of the strong must lead them to seek and preoccupy themselves with serving and loving. What if your way is the right way. Are you willing to not insist on it for the good of a weak neighbor? Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever's set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Who's he concerned about in that scenario? Who, who is he concerned that you and I focus on and concern ourselves with? the unbeliever who's offering us that food. Look at verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, say it's a person at the dinner who might be a Christian or a completely different scenario where you go to a dinner and you're with some Christian friends in this scenario or in this time period and someone says, this, is, this meat's been offered in sacrifice, then he says, do not eat it. Why? For the sake of the one who informed you. 
and for the sake of conscience. And then he clarifies in verse 29. I do not mean your conscience, but his. Paul's focus, Paul's direction is focused on, his preoccupation is with the good of the other, serving the other. In both of the situations in 27 and 28, verse 27 and verse 28, it is the other person, the weak, the person who who doesn't share your identity, doesn't share your way of looking at the world so that you can serve them. Or look at verse 23, all things are lawful, which you'll see in quotations there, and Paul is quoting something that the Corinthians in the church there probably said to him again and again as he was calling them to obedience. They were all about freedom. He says, all things are lawful, and his response is, not all things are helpful, though. They say, all things are lawful. Paul's response is, but not all things build up. Not all things encourage. He says that his goal is to be helpful, to build up, not to railroad people with his rights or his freedom. So, can you imagine a community like that? Can you imagine a church like that? Can you imagine a family like that? Kids, uh, if you have older siblings or you have younger ones, can you imagine a, an environment in your home where you pursued the good of your younger sibling, the one who drives you absolutely bonkers, right? Now, my first thought, and probably yours too, when you read verse 24, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor, my first thought is, well, who's going to take care of me? The irony is the answer is right there in the verse. Who's going to take care of me? You. If everyone is preoccupied and focused on everyone else's good, right? If you are fixated on my good and I'm fixated on your good, whose needs are not going to be met? Sorry for the double negative. No one's. Everyone's needs are going to get focused on because we're all living according to Paul's admonition here. No one gets ignored. That's absolutely amazing. And what gets exposed, though, in all of this is how tainted our serving of one another is. Most displays and acts of kindness are done with the subtle, ever so slight assumption that the act will be returned down the road, either in kind or some other way. Be honest. You're kind. You're nice to other people most of the time because there's just a, it might be really, really small. But deep down, you're really hoping that they will pay you back, help you out again down the road when you're in a similar situation. Very, very, very rarely do we serve for the sake of the other person pure, uh, purely. End of story. Right? Our serving is tainted. Um, <clears throat> if... Uh, if you serve other people for yourself, you're, you're serving them, you're exercising kindness to them uh, for you. And that idea should make you nauseous because it's gross how we can take good deeds, how we can take service 
to other people and make it about ourselves. And this is a very, well, it's not subtle. It's a very large temptation in pastoral ministry. You serve a congregation of people. You seek to equip them for works of ministry, but all the while it's for you to gain a name for you, to get pats on the back, to get a reputation for being amazing. So when you're paid to serve and equip other people, uh, you have to be careful because the congregation, the people, can become a tool, a means to an end. Please pray for Drew and myself because it's a real temptation. But Paul's freedom, Paul's freedom from the law and at the same time him saying, I'm bound under the law of Christ, back in chapter 9, allows him to say, look down in verse 32 and 33, give no offense, put no stumbling block in the place of, or in front of, I should say, Jews, Greeks, or to the church of God. That pretty much covers everybody in the Corinthians world. So, He's saying, give no offense, put no stumbling block in front of anyone that you come in contact with, just as, or in the same way as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Now, uh, here's what convicted me this week. Again, Paul did not read the book Boundaries. Because how in the world can you please Or how in the world can you even try to please everyone in everything that you do? I was convicted because I coach people to do the opposite of that. Why why are you trying to please everyone? It's a waste of time. You're going to burn out. You can't anyway. Everyone's demands are ridiculous. Don't worry about trying to please them all. Don't worry about trying to meet them. Your life's going to get busy and out of control. You won't have any time for you. I've not read boundaries either, but apparently it's affected me. Right? But my reasons for coaching people to do that and Paul's are very different. And here's why. Because Paul's goal, look at his goal. Because you can't stop halfway through 33. He says, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. So that's the, that's the mechanism or that's the, the, the lifestyle in which he lives to, to try to please everyone and everything, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, what's his ultimate goal? That they may be saved. In other words, they're good. And so it might require me, your salvation, your good, might require me to confront you about sin. It might require me to encourage you about something, be really sweet and kind for you, bear a burden for you. The situation is going to be different depending on the person that I'm talking to or the person I come in contact with. But my goal in telling people to not try to please everyone is because they're pleasing everyone for them. And Paul is seeking to please everyone. That might be confusing the way I said that. I'm looking at or I'm I'm coming in contact with people who tend to please everyone uh, for themselves. I'm trying to please all of you. I'm trying to do good to everyone in my life. But ultimately, it's about me. And Paul's goal for people, or for himself rather, is is to disadvantage himself so that those he serves may be saved. He's seeking to please them for their good, for their salvation. So we're left wondering here, 
How in the world does something like this happen to a person? If you consider who Paul was and who Paul is now at the time of this letter, how do you become that type of person? Because here you're talking about a man who was a bigot, a murderer, a self-righteous religious zealot, and overnight he was changed. How on earth does that happen? What had Paul experienced? There was a massive shift in him that made him one type of person while he was another type of person his entire life. We'll call it a seismic shift. You can see where I'm going here, right? It was a gravitational reversal, as if gravity could be reversed. Now, I want to tell you this amazing story. I credit uh, Tim Rice, who's the pastor over at Trinity uh, in Lakeland, who's our our mother church that planted us. Uh, He shared this the other day. It was amazing. It was around the end of 1811, beginning of 1812, there was an earthquake in New Madrid, Missouri, right along the Mississippi River. Now, as a general rule, rivers flow downhill, due to gravitational flow, downhill in in quotes there, because I know some of them flow from south to north. But whatever the gravitational pull is, that's the way they flow. And for the mighty Mississippi, that's north to south. But this earthquake, which they say shook church bells as far as Charleston, South Carolina, they estimate it affected approximately 1 million square miles. I mean, can you imagine that? At the time, they scaled it, it was like 8.8, 8.9 on the Richter scale. This thing was so powerful that it reversed the flow of the river. And due to the earthquake, the Mississippi River flowed for a time from south to north. How on earth does that happen? Well, if you're not a Christian or you're new to Christianity or the Bible, let me unpack this a bit. The Bible teaches that the gravitational flow of every human heart is toward itself. So that even with serving, right, my... The the gravitational flow from me to you might be out if I'm serving you, but ultimately it's like a magnet, and my service to you is really coming back back to me, right? So every human heart, the flow is toward itself, and the way we manage relationships, make decisions, engage in conversations, it all has this flow toward us. We are narcissistic by nature. We have a core of self centered motivation. Yes, that is gross. It should. You should be getting nauseous because it's nasty. And that's why Paul exhorts us to what he does in verse 24, but it's why it makes it so hard. Something has to happen to reverse that pull, just like the New Madrid earthquake, a reversal of seismic proportions, such that something happens that's not supposed to happen. Rivers don't flow against gravity unless the force of something greater acts upon them. And so for Paul, that something was meeting the risen Christ on his way to Damascus, and everything changed. What makes the life of selfless loving possible is that many, many years before the Missouri earthquake, another earthquake occurred. And when Jesus Christ was killed on the cross in the place of you and me, his enemies, the earth shook, the rocks split open, the temple's curtain was torn in two, the way to God was now open to everyone. But not only that, the tombs were opened and the dead were walking and talking. It was the beginning of a new creation. And when you and I are united to Jesus by faith, the promises, his life, his death, his resurrection become ours. Not only that, but he promises to send the Spirit, his Spirit, as a deposit 
that guarantees our eternal inheritance. And he promises to meet all of our needs. And this is huge in this discussion because if I'm not worried or scared about my needs, then what? I'm free to go right after you. I'm free to go after yours. I'm free to preoccupy myself and seek yours. The perfect love of God for me in Christ casts out all fear. So when Paul met the living, risen Jesus, he was changed. The gravitational flow of his heart was reversed. And the earthquake of the grace of God in the human heart causes things to happen and changes to occur that no one ever thought possible, just like the New Madrid earthquake. This is why you've heard stories or testimonies of people who were strung out on drugs, or maybe they were alcoholics or or whatever, and they get converted, and now they're a Christian, and they stand up and they say, I don't do that anymore. And you, you just, how in the world is that possible? Because of the earthquake. The earthquake of the grace of God. To put it in perspective, instead of killing Christians, okay, now get this, instead of killing Christians... Paul is now risking his life to share the gospel with them. Okay? At the beginning of the book of Acts, he's killing Christians. By the end of the book of Acts, he's risking his life to get to people to share the gospel with them. So my question is, have you experienced this earthquake? Have you met the risen Christ? Is the gravitational pull of your heart being reversed? Granted, there's a lot of work for his spirit to do in all of us. But the promise is he is going to do it. Now, go down to the the third point there. Paul's exhortation in chapter 11, verse 1. I want to say it like this. Jesus Christ, the author of freedom, willingly enslaved himself to us, disadvantaging himself so that we could be saved from our enslavement and no freedom. That should sound familiar. Because that's exactly what Paul says in verse 33. That is, Jesus could have said verse 33. Okay? In fact, Jesus said something like that in Matthew 20, verse 28. He says he didn't come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. When the truth of Jesus, the, the author of freedom, enslaving, willingly enslaving himself, to free you and I, when that truth comes home to your heart, it provides a power. And that power becomes a power for modeling what Paul calls imitating in chapter 11, verse 1. Jesus' way of disadvantaging himself for the salvation of others became Paul's way of life. What Jesus did for Paul becomes the paradigm for what Paul does for others. Did you hear that? What what Jesus did for Paul becomes the paradigm for what Paul does for other people. And the reason for everything Paul does is, that's the way Jesus did it for me. We're only worth imitating to the degree we're imitating Christ. And so, who are you imitating? Elders, can we say to this church, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Fathers, can you say to your wife and children, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Kids, teenagers, if you have younger siblings, can you say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Even in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul is imitating Jesus because what he's doing is not directing the people he is leading to himself as much as he's directing them to Jesus. And Jesus did the same thing. 
he deflected glory and attention away from himself and directed people to God the Father. John the Baptist said it this way, he must increase, but I must decrease. And Jesus tweaks that just a bit to say, I must decrease so that you might increase. I am disadvantaged, so you gain advantage. Jesus said things like, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Paul said very strange things like, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then he says to the church, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We have to be very careful, particularly in our day and time, because there's a lot of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, just screwing up of the Christian life. A lot of adulterated uh, messages. The Christian life is not about self-fulfillment or self-actualization. It's about becoming self-forgetful. Christians are people who are more and more selfless. Not thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less and less, and in turn thinking of who? You. More and more and more. Imitating Jesus, it's a life of forgetting myself in your needs. Not primarily a way of self-denial, which can become an inward turn, but self-sacrifice, which is a turn outward. Uh, I want to quote you uh, from a, a sermon by a guy named B.B. Warfield, who was a 20th century Bible scholar. Uh, The sermon is Imitating the Incarnation. You can find a PDF if you just Google it, although I prefer you not Google it right now. Um, But I would encourage you to read it later. It's amazing. It's an unbelievable sermon. But he says the Christian life means, quote, not indifference to our times and our fellow men. It means absorption into them. It means forgetfulness of self in others. It means entering into every man's hopes and fears, longings and despairs. It means many-sidedness of spirit, multiform activity, multiplicity of sympathies. It means a richness of development. It means, it, it means not that we should live one life, but a thousand lives. Binding ourselves to a thousand souls by the threads of so loving a sympathy that, listen, their lives become ours. Now, that should sound so utterly overwhelming that you got tired just listening to me read it. I get tired just reading it. But Warfield doesn't stop there. He tells us where the courage and endurance for this type of life comes from. He says, only when we humbly walk this path, seeking truly in it not our own things but those of others, we shall find the promise true that he who loses his life shall find it. Only when, like Christ, and in loving obedience to his call and example, We take no account of ourselves, but we freely give ourselves to others. We shall find, each in his measure, the saying true of himself also. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The path of self-sacrifice is the path of glory. The cross never comes without the resurrection. Death is followed by life. That's the promise. So as we close, I want to bring you back to the assurance of pardon Uh, which is in your worship folder, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Paul says something so profound at the very beginning in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. 
He says, if you are united to Christ by faith, you have the mind of Christ. I mean, I'll let that sink in. If you are united to Jesus by faith, you have the mind of Jesus. And it's his mind that makes a life of selfless loving beautiful and glorious and fulfilling. Losing your life so that you can find it. Serving, dying in order to live. Imitating the one who has done that very thing for us. And so I want to pray and ask the Lord to make this true of us, to make us this kind of church, this kind of people, uh, for the sake of our city and our county and our world, uh, for the glory of God alone. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for willingly enslaving yourself, becoming a bond servant, uh, taking the form of a servant and serving, uh, serving to your own hurt, serving to your own death, uh, even death on a cross. And yet, as Paul says, uh, it is because of that, therefore, uh, you have been highly exalted so that at your name every knee should bow and every tongue confess that you, Lord Jesus, are indeed Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we pray that you would make us a congregation, a church, a community of faith, uh, that as we are imitating you in your life, death, and resurrection, the world might see, the world might come to know the love that you have for us. And they would, they, they, they would want a part of that. They would want to know more of who you are, what you've done, and ultimately, that all we do, as Paul says in this passage, eating, drinking, whatever it is, we do all for your glory. Come, Lord Jesus, and do that work among us. We pray in your name. Amen. Uh, it's a tall order uh, to go out and uh, preoccupy ourselves with seeking the good of everyone else except ourselves. Uh, but the promise of this benediction is as you go to work that out in your life, whatever that looks like, uh, the call, this is the fuel, the power a reminder of the power source for that work to get done in your life. Uh, So as you go, you go with the promise and the blessing of God over you. So hear this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.